Yo, dog, I heard you liked analog technology. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Silicon Valley. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Ben Sherman. You have been fined one credit for a violation of the verbal morality statute. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis, and I've got three shells. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Jeff Kelly. Hello from Detroit. I was so waiting for you to say that I said your name wrong. That has actually happened to me one time. They said Kelly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you want to introduce yourself for us? Sure. So I uh, do iOS apps for Detroit Labs here in Detroit. Um, I've been doing iOS since about 2008, and uh, wrote a book called Learn Cocoa Touch for iOS. Uh, it's about two years old now. It was iOS 5, so you should probably, uh, you know, find a newer book if you're getting a book right now. But, uh, yeah, that was published through A-Press, and um, uh, now I just do iOS apps full-time. Awesome. So we brought you on to talk about concurrency. When when I hear con- concurrency, I think threading. Mm-hmm. Is that generally the way most people go, or is that just me? Yeah, um, I tend to view concurrency as solving a problem. So the typical problem is I push the button, and it takes a while before the thing is done. So threading is one approach to that. Uh, you can also use like GCD, NS Operation Queue. I'm sure we'll get into those. But it all starts out with, I have this thing that I want to do, and I don't want to block the main thread to do it. Okay. So um, maybe a good way to start would just be to kind of enumerate what our options are for doing stuff concurrently or in parallel or whatever in iOS. Sure. So uh, And pretty much everything I'm going to say also applies to OS X, uh, since they share so much. So we'll start at the bottom. We've got uh, anything you can do in the standard Unix threading model. So if you really want to spin up like pthreads, go for it. That all works just fine. Um, so you can have multiple threads running code at the same time. There's an object-oriented model on top of that NS thread that gets you the nice Objective-C interface to it. Most people don't use that these days. You know, you'd use a thread if you needed something going in the background, just kind of spinning through a loop or waiting on an event. Most of the time now, people use either Grand Central Dispatch, which is a C API for dispatching blocks. That's pretty good. There's some some overhead in learning it because it's C-based, not Objective-C. So if you're not used to a C API, there can be some gotchas. And then on top of that is NS Operation Queue, which is a further abstraction of uh, GCD. And the idea there is you have operations that are little tasks that run on queues. And you can enqueue them and wait for them to finish. Uh, and then finally, there's just API-level stuff. So if you're sorting an array or enumerating a dictionary, there are API calls you can do that do those concurrently without having to set anything up. What is like your decision point on like when to use what? I always try to use the highest level thing that's going to work for my needs. So if I can get away with just using the NS Dictionary API, I'll use that. If I need to drop down to an operation queue, I'll do that. A typical example of an operation queue scenario would be I need to download an image, uh, and that download itself, I'll probably use AF networking, and that'll be its own NS operation, uh, and that'll run on a network queue, so I don't have a thousand network requests going out at once. Um, and then let's say I need to resize that image, so that would be a separate operation uh, that would run on maybe an image resizing queue, and then finally use that image once those are both done. So just using that as an example, like how would you structure that? I know there's like dependencies between NS operations. 
Or you could just have one operation call back and then queue up the second one with the output of the first. How do you typically set those things up? Right. So that's the, the big feature of NS operations is those dependencies, um, especially that they can traverse multiple queues. So I can set up a network operation and then immediately after I set that up, I can set up the resizing operation and just hook up the output from one to the input of the other. And then I'll put the second one on the queue first, add the first one as a dependency, then add the first one to its queue um, so that I ensure, especially with the 64-bit simulator, I've noticed that sometimes it can run so fast that your operation finishes before you have a chance to add it as a dependency. So you kind of work backwards. Yeah, so... You get the final state set up, add the dependencies, get those set up, and then finally you get the first one that you actually start. And um, how do you correlate the output of the first, like, how do you pass that data from, like, the downloaded image, for, for instance? Because, like, one option for creating an NS operation is just to, like, take data in your constructor. But if you've already created the operation, then how do you pass it along? I'm big on properties. So, you know, an image download operation might have some properties like, uh, a UI image or an NS string for a path. Uh, and then I'll just set those in the operation so that when the next one goes, it has a property for the first operation and it can grab what it needs. And then if those are nil, then I know that there's an error that's happened. Um, you can also do block operations. So you just initialize the operation with a block. And then in the scope where you make all of those, um, you can define some variables that you set that are passed from one to the other. Um, so is the setting of that dependent, like the dependent operation property, is that something you would set up yourself? Or is there any kind of facility built in for getting a reference to your dependent operations? That's something I would set up myself. You know, there's probably a library somewhere on GitHub to do it. So GCD is, is taking responsibility for putting things on the right thread and then kind of firing off your NS operations like in the right order. But your code is responsible or the code that we write is responsible for actually moving kind of data through that pipeline. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Huh. I wonder why they don't just, I kind of was hoping that you were going to say, and then it just magically appears as a, <laughs> like as a, uh, as passed in as parameters to a function or something. Yeah. There, there is a GCD data type. It's like dispatch data. And so you can use GCD to pass data around, or if you have a huge uh, data set, you can operate on individual parts of it concurrently. It's pretty low level of an API, so you usually don't need to do that unless you have extreme performance needs. Typically, it's just easier to get those things in the operations. Or a lot of the times what I'll do is I'll have, like for downloads, I'll have an algorithm to say this is the file name of the thing when it's downloaded on the file system, and just use that file. So if I'm downloading a, like a two gig image, I'm not going to keep that all in memory. So I'll have a, an output stream that just writes that image to the cache. And then I'll know the path of that image when I go to load that in image IO to resize it. Okay. So the, the file system kind of is your, is your scratch pad for moving stuff between these different asynchronous, uh, operations. Exactly. Yep. If you're doing stuff with just setting properties, do you have to do anything special because you're passing things kind of potentially across thread boundaries? Like, do you need to do some magical invocation or can you just, just set the property just as if it was all running in the same thread? Yeah, most of the time you can just set the property. So the nice thing is that when you set up an operation as a dependency, it won't start the second one until the first one says, I'm finished. And so as um, long as you set all your properties before you say you're finished, you know, then it's a read-only situation. Okay. 
And does GCD have any kind of built-in capabilities for doing kind of stuff in, in parallel? Like if you wanted to say, let's say you've got some huge, this is a silly example because it's always the example people use and I'm not really sure why you'd ever do it on an iPhone, but um, you've got some huge array and you want to kind of do some expensive operation and, and you want to use light up all the cores of the iPhone. So you want to run kind of four four calculations in parallel across that array and then kind of join all the results together at the end. Is that something where you're going to be doing most of the work yourself, or is there some magical API that Apple have provided to help with that? With that there story? is, in fact, a magical huh. API. So the first thing you do is you would say, dispatch, get global queue. Um, you'll get a background queue with a priority from high to low. And then there's a, a function you can call called dispatch apply. You basically tell it, I need to run this n number of times on this queue, and here's a block. Uh, and the block is what gets called every single time. So you'll have your index there. Uh, and then you can operate on your array of data. And that will do the thing where it automatically scales to the number of cores and it, you know, makes sure that you're not. So neat. It does make sure that everything isn't waiting. So let's say you have eight cores on your Mac and you run that and every single core is waiting on the disk. It's smart enough to spin up more while those are waiting to use the CPU. Oh wow. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty kind of advanced stuff. Yeah, and, and the really nice thing on OS ten, I mean you don't really see this on iOS because there's only one app really running, but um is that every single app has the same kind of global background cues to use. Uh, and so the system is really smart about like looking at the picture holistically and making good decisions about which processes to prioritize. You know, if you were writing NS thread, every single app would have to do the the horrible step of finding out how many CPU cores there are and then trying to find out how busy those cores are and trying to figure out how many threads I should spin up and now I've got to dispatch work onto those threads and make sure I don't get the CPU too busy and it's, it's a lot of work. And importantly, it's a huge surface area for bugs and those are like the worst, the worst bugs. Uh, so you don't want to write that code at all. And presumably, like, if you're running, you know, on an iPhone in particular or on iOS in particular, you don't have that kind of higher level perspective because you can't see what other processes are doing kind of for security reasons so right. whereas the operating system obviously does know what everyone's doing so it, it has enough knowledge to to manage things a little bit better than you would be able to in your own application i suppose yeah um, Jeff, i have a question sure so we're ta- i think we're talking mostly about ns operation q and ns operation so far and i'm i'm a little curious to know why you would use the cgcd api in favor, you know, instead of NS operation. Is there a good reason why you want to use the C API or cases where it does things better? Yeah, so one uh, canonical example is all of the, like, you know, the dispatch async and the dispatch sync, those all have function pointer equivalents. So if you already have some Unixy library you're using that's C, you can just pass in a pointer to a function you want to call instead of a block. And that can be pretty powerful if you have legacy code that you want to integrate. Most of us don't, though. Uh, most of us are using newer APIs than that. Um, but there are some things you can do in GCD that you can't do with operation queues, or at least you can't do easily. So one really powerful example is making any class thread safe easily. Um, you can make a separate queue for, uh, let's say, accessing an array. And anytime you want to read from that array, you just call dispatch sync with your queue when you read from the array in the block. When you want to write to it, uh, there's a separate function called dispatch barrier async or sync and, uh, whichever you need. And the barrier, what it does is it clears out everything in the queue before that block runs 
it runs the block, and then it runs anything else. So it's a really cheap way to make sure that whenever you write to an array or a dictionary or just a value, that it, you only ever write when nobody is reading. And then you can read concurrently because you're not changing anything. So it's a sort of uh, mutex or semaphore. It's just a way of uh, yeah. locking the data structure so that nobody else is touching it while you're writing to it. You, in other words, it makes the operation atomic. Yes. And uh, GCD is really good at stuff like that because it's so low level and it's so built into the system. A good example is dispatch once. Uh, it's used like in singleton initialization code a lot now. You know, however you feel about singletons, that's how, if you're going to make one, that's how you should do it. When you call dispatch once, you give it a block and a token. And for that token, it will only ever call the block once. And if you hit that for multiple threads while that block is executing, it'll just wait until it's done. And then finally, once it's finished, if you call it again, it's just the no-op and doesn't do anything. So like at the kernel level, it's giving you a way to make sure that block only ever happens once. Because a lot of the time with singleton code, you might see two threads call like the shared instance method at the same time. And so it'll go through and make a new singleton twice, and then, you know, the second one that runs is the one that wins. And now you have two problems. Yes. So for the, like, the dispatch barrier stuff, is it locking on the object that you're operating on, or is there some magic where it... Like, how does, how does it know to correlate those two, the, the reads and the writes? Is it based on just the, the array that you want to read from? Uh, it's based on the queue that you dispatch oh, to. Okay. Okay. So, you know, the queues are pretty lightweight. They've actually kind of behind the scenes become objects, but not really. But yes, because if you have ARC, you can't release them. But they're pretty lightweight, and they're lightweight enough that if you have a small amount of objects, you know, not a million, but 10, there's, you know, almost no cost to making a separate queue for each of the important properties you want to hit. Or even just a queue for, like, all the properties of the object, and then they can kind of just share and so when I'm creating those queues, do I actually, I'm actually creating, uh, let me kind of try and talk through what I think, what I think you're saying. So I would, let's say I have, uh, an object that I want to be accessed from multiple threads for whatever reason. So I want this to make this object thread safe. So what I could do is create, for each instance of that object, create a queue and like assign it, you know, keep, store that queue essentially in, as a property of that object, and then whenever I, I try to access stuff internally, it, uh, my getters and setters would have to kind of do stuff through those dispatch methods. Is that is that right, or am I doing it wrong there? Yep, that's pretty much totally right. I definitely would, you know, I try to make sure that the that queue is never exposed outside the object. So yeah. uh, if it's a property, it's going to be in the uh, class extension. Gotcha. And then, you know, from the outside, all you see is a property, and it's marked non-atomic, but on the inside of the class, you know, those getters and setters then call into that dispatch code. Well, so that's a good question. So the atomic, non-atomic doodads that you set on a property, mm-hmm. uh, what's the di- what, what would be my motivation for, for doing this stuff kind of manually with, with a queue versus, or with the dispatch stuff in a queue rather than just using that atomic doohickey, whatever that thing is called? So for that, that atomic, uh, let's say you have an NS array. So the pointer to the array uh, right. itself is atomic, yeah. but if it's mutable, <laughs> then the stuff inside of it is not. So I could atomically access it and then mess with it while someone else has atomically accessed it and isn't messing with the internals. Exactly. Yeah, so if you have, like, a float, you don't need to worry about it as much. It's just, it's you know, it's a space with bits in it. But if it's a pointer to a mutable array, then you really need to worry. Gotcha. 
So that's why you should probably use NS array rather than NS musical array, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So the you know even if the public facing property is an NS array and the internal you know IVAR that you use to store it is mutable, that works fine. Except someone at some point is going to cast that NS array into a mutable array because they think they know what they're doing. Yeah, and then just <laughs> stop working with those people. Yeah, right. After you've spent two weeks trying to nail down this weird concurrency bug that only happens when your boss is watching. Right, it only ever happens on the CFO's phone and he's got a 3GS and you don't understand why because he's the CFO, but that's how it always happens. <laughs> and that's another good point is that these bugs with concurrency, they're very hard to reproduce. You know, you'll see someone say, well, I had this thing and I pushed the button and one of those times it crashed. And that's like as much as you get. So one of the things you want to do for debugging purposes is anytime you make a queue, both for GCD and NS operation queue, you can give them a label. So for GCD, you, you'd use like a, you know, com.example.download queue. Uh, then when you're in the debugger in Xcode, you can actually see that label when a block is running. So you know what queue it's in. You got any other tips for, like, like you said, reproducing these things can be, uh, you know, if you do have some kind of concurrency bug, reproducing them can be a horrendous exercise. Have you got any other kind of tips for either re- tricks to reproduce these kind of intermittent things or tips for debugging them once you have reproduced them? Apart from that one. Yeah. So the, the number one tip is, you know, you have a, a, a data set of test data that you're going to use and you want that to be like the largest data set that's ever processed. So somebody comes to you and you're expecting someone to have, let's say, a thousand items in a shoebox app, and they've put a million in, and you never planned for that. So as soon as that happens, you want to make sure that your data set has two million and that everything works fine. And also for testing, so I do a lot of TDD and we use Kiwi. It's tempting. You can write these like a, a unit test. You can say like, this thing should eventually equal this thing. And then you start code that schedules a block. And what we've found is like, uh, we've got a Mac mini for our CI server and it's really slow because it's a Mac mini. And <laughs> the timeout on that should eventually in Kiwi where it says, you know, I'll wait five seconds until I finish this. And, uh, it's not long enough on the Mac mini because it's so slow. So the thing to do instead is you want to test first off that the block got scheduled, that everything started. And then you want to test the code that's going to run when it finishes itself in isolation. So you can test both of those things synchronously and not, you don't want to test GCD or NS operation queue. You can assume those pretty much work. Uh, What you want to test is your actual code. You can't see it, but my head is nodding furiously along with all of those (laughs) statements. There's a really good pattern around that called uh, humble object, I think it's called which is around trying to constrain your asynchronous stuff. You know, your, that, that stuff that makes something asynchronous or run on a different thread or whatever, like try and keep that to just the plumbing code and then have the, the actual work that's being done kind of separate mm-hmm. uh, so, that you, so that you can test that con- uh, synchronously and not have to deal with all of these wacky issues with, with threading and blocking and waiting and all that junk. And then you can have a few maybe a few high-level tests that verify that you're using GCD or whatever correctly. But Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's a nice thing about NS operation because in, instead of making one with a block, you can make a subclass of NS operation and then you just implement the main method and that's really easy to test on its own. You just In your test, you just call main and you never have to schedule it. Yeah, I'd almost say that NS operation is an implementation of, of that humble object pattern, actually. Yeah, 
Yeah, cool. And so that's The one uh, tricky thing with NS operations and testing is that the state is, so you have um, like is finished, is executing, is canceled, and all of that uses KVO. And so uh, it can be, you know, tricky to test with KVO synchronously uh, because you'll set something and then the notifier is scheduled, but, you know, it's scheduled asynchronously. That's a gotcha to watch out for, but there are other ways around that. So um, we talked about like downloading images and resizing them. We talked about like coordinating access to a shared resource uh, with barrier blocks. What other types of, you know, core data comes to mind, but are there any other types of um, operations where, you know, concurrency is a natural fit? Yeah, so right now I'm actually running an app using OpenGL, and uh, it's got several different objects. And for each of these objects, I need to do several things. I need to download the vertex data, I need to download several textures, and I need to load all of that into graphics memory. And uh, at OpenGL, it's kind of like core data in that for every thread you use, you have to make a separate context. So when I download all this data, I don't want to parse a texture file or the vertex data on the main thread because I want my UI to stay responsive. So you can spin up a, a separate queue or a separate thread and make a new GL context, but they share the same data across them in what's called a share group. So I can do the parsing and the loading into memory on a separate queue, and then when it's done, I can actually start drawing it on the main queue. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, basically you want... Like every single method should try to get off of the main queue as quickly as possible. Like it's still got to do what it says on the tin. You know, your, your load data method still needs to load the data. But like a secondary goal should be that that load data method should return as fast as possible. And if it needs to schedule something in the background, that's fine. Now you said that you need to set up a separate context for each thread. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. So OpenGL. It uses a GL context. It's a it's a state machine. And so you call these C functions that then set the state, and they all operate on, you know, what's the current context. And that has to exist for you to, to call anything. And so what you would do is in your initialization code, before you start your task, you would just make a new context. You have what's called a share group, and you would use, make it with that share group from the main context. It's pretty analogous to core data, where for each separate queue or separate thread, you would make an NS-managed object context and then pass around object IDs instead of objects. Yeah, that's a pretty common pattern in, in core data and one that will probably bite you in development, so you would notice, but not always. Yeah. Um, and I think those are the, like kind of the worst types of things where you're like, oh, that works, ship it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you know, often you know, as developers uh, in crunch time, we get backed up and we wanted to, sh- we just want to ship. And so we'll test it with a very small data set under ideal conditions. So you want to test with a large data set on the worst possible device you can run on. So if you support the second generation iPod touch, run on that with a million objects. Um, especially with concurrency, because the simulator is a simulator and not an emulator, it's going to use all your cores. So if you have an eight core MacBook Pro, it's going to run on eight cores, and that can hide problems that you see on an iPhone with two cores. And if you have, you know, the new Mac Pro with uh, twelve cores, there's twenty four virtual cores, and you're you're really different from an iPhone at that point. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> but uh, if anyone wants to buy me one so I can test that out, I'll, I'll happily blog about it. Seems like a fair trade. Yeah. So, is the only option you have for concurrency on 
an iOS device threads, or can you actually fork the process? Yeah, you know, I, I've never actually tried to call fork. I would imagine that's disallowed on iOS. You know, I don't think that there's the usual Unixy style scenario where you would actually want to fork, but that is a good question. I, I don't, I would say probably not. We had this discussion at Cocoa Heads recently, and the consensus seemed to be that, I mean, the fork function is, is available, but if you call it, bad things happen. It okay. doesn't really, it doesn't really work the way you would expect. And fork is even hard to use on a system that does support it, like OS 10. It's not a, not a simple, um, beginner API kind of thing. Yeah. You know, if you, so if you follow the viewpoint of, I'm going to use the highest level API possible to succeed and you get all the way down to forks, then I think that's when you need to start to reconsider the problem you're solving. What about on uh, OS 10? Yeah, so on OS 10, you know, forks are just fine. They work as you would expect. You know, I used to, before I did iPhone stuff, I worked as a Mac sysadmin, and we used a, a portable C library called, or I guess you'd call app now, called Radbind, and it made use of forks, and, you know, they work just fine. But a lot of the even command line stuff on OS 10 is moving towards GCD. Um, so where you would have like a, a run loop on your event-driven OS 10 app, um, you can also start an app just straight up GCD. A good example of this, um, if you go to the Apple open source page, um, I think it's in one of the system uh, libraries. There's a, an open source utility called Caffeinate that's on your Mac. And Caffeinate is responsible for keeping your Mac awake if you need it to stay awake. And the code for that is available, and that's an example of an app that instead of calling like NS run loop run, it uses um, GCD entirely. Uh, it's called Caffeine. If, uh, if Caffeine we're... is the menu bar app. Oh, okay. Is this a different one then? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Caffeine is a third-party app, and that's does the same thing, but it sits in the menu bar. Hey, look at uh-huh. that! I just found a command line thing called Caffeinate. I never knew that was there. Yep. So the uh, the code that it finally ends up calling is uh, dispatch main, and that takes place of like the NS application main or UI application main that you'd be used to. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, talking about run loops. There used to be like a, um, it was more common before GCD, but you would do stuff like perform selector in background or perform selector after delay. And uh, so it would be a way to sort of, I need to do something, but I need to finish what I'm doing first. And so there would be some like subtle bugs that you could fix sometimes by just saying perform selector after delay zero, which would just schedule it for the next like run loop. And I'm wondering if, if you could shed any light on like how run loops are used. Cause there's a way to do concurrency, like where it's still done on the main thread, but it's not done in the user interface portion of the main thread, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, the run loop, it sits there and it, it loops through, as the name implies, waiting for events. And those events can be timers firing. They can be the user interacting with the app. And, um, when you do something like perform selector after delay, or perform selector on main thread. It's just scheduling that to run in the run loop. Um, another good run loop trick is like NS run loop current run loop to get the current one. And then on that, you call run until date and you pass in the current date. And that, at first, it seems like that doesn't make any sense. Why would you run it until now? But what that does is it kind of flushes the queue of everything that's been queued up until this point. Um, and so some of those subtle problems you mentioned where there's like a race condition can be solved that way. Um, Apple's gotten pretty good about adding completion handlers to some things that cause that. So one common one used to be 
like presenting a modal view controller on iOS. Um, and now when you do that, they give you a, a completion block that you can pass in to run something when it's done. And that's definitely preferable, right? Because anytime you see like perform selector after delay or now there's a GCD equivalent called dispatch after, that's a code smell. That means that there's some kind of race condition that you weren't able to fix uh, with an actual API. Um, and so you should look at those and if you just actually can't solve it, you know, file a bug with Apple or try to solve that problem in a different way. So well, we talked about processes and forking processes, and I seem to remember at, I can't remember if it was last year or a couple of years ago at, at WWDC, Apple were talking a lot about XPC, this kind of idea of separating out your, I guess on at least on, they were mainly talking about it on, on the OSX side of things and that they had this kind of, this pitch that you should make small kind of small processes that were intercommunicating with this new fancy XPC thing. And then like they wouldn't have, if they crashed, then it would like, they would magically not really crash. And if they, uh, if they got, uh, you could do privilege separation, which I guess is what, you know, grown up Unix servers use to, to reduce the attack surface of, for viruses and that kind of stuff. That, I guess that, that um, sounds kind of like what we were just talking about with forking processes, but I'm not even sure if it offers a different way to manage these interconnecting processes rather than forking, or is it, it you left, still left to do that low-level Unixy stuff? Yeah, so all the different processes with XBC kind of run on their own. The nice thing is you can get on OS X LaunchD, this is kind of the, the launcher daemon that lives in the system. That will be able to restart them and launch them when the system starts. And so it's just kind of separating all of that code because right, the app that draws the UI on your screen does not need to be the same app that installs system components, right? So um, it's not so much about concurrency instead of as it is about you know good code separation, but there are some nice concurrency benefits from it, you know, because when your model is that your process sends a message to another process, like there's asynchronicity built in right there. So if the other process spins up eight threads before it finishes the task and then calls you back, you know, that's fine. Um, you don't need to know that. And presumably a lot of those calls between processes are, are asynchronous. Well, I guess I'm assuming that, but maybe I'm wrong. Like if I have like a little worker process that does image processing, for example, or maybe that's a bad example. Let's say go with the security thing. Let's say I have a a small kind of process that's just responsible for saving files to to disk or something. And I wanted to, from my main process, kind of ask it to save the file. Would I kind of fire that off and then wait for it at some point in the future to come back and say, "Hey, I'm done," or 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 can I can I still kind of keep my nice synchronous programming model of just calling a method and having it return a value? Yeah, so, and this is where the fact that I don't use XPC a lot is going to bite me, but uh, uh, one thing you can do is use like distributed objects. So you can have one process with an Objective-C object that sends a message to another one, and that other object happens to live in this other process. And it, it, you know, just browsing the documentation looks like that works fine, but you can also just send like, uh, like a SIG kill or something like that. So not using a whole lot, I'm going to say yes, you can do both. There are actually kind of two APIs for XPC, and the, the newer of the two, which came out in 10.8, is is all Objective-C. The older one is C only. With the Objective-C API, you can send messages to objects in, in the other process as if they were just objects in your process. 
but there is a restriction that those methods all must have a return type of void. So if you want to pass data back from a method, it, it, it is done asynchronously and you have to do it using a completion block or that kind of thing. I don't know if I artic articulated that well, but... No, that makes sense. So, so I can't ask a process to do something and get the result back immediately, but I can ask the process to do something and know that the other process received that message and is doing it. Yeah. Okay. Is any of this stuff available for iOS? I know that for system stuff, I think it was with iOS 6, they started using XPC for things like the mail kind of, the stuff where you're, you're invoking kind of systemy things like sending mails or browsing photos or whatever. But I, as far as I remember, there wasn't actually any way for a lowly non-Apple developer to create their own XPC things. Yeah, and that's still the case. The only way that's you know officially sanctioned to send data from one app to another is either a URL scheme. So I launch this URL and the system switches apps to this other app and then does something with it. Or you can use inter-application audio to send audio data. And there's an app called AudioBus that's really nice for automating that. But there's no straight-up XPC that you can use, right? So if you actually look at the classes and you look at what's going on, you know, that view controller that comes up for making a new mail message, that is XPC, and it's like a UI remote view controller. And that would be a fantastic API for us to be able to use, but uh, at least right now we can't. It's also really frustrating if you're the maintainer of a test automation framework because suddenly you can't actually automate any of that UI, which makes people who use your test automation framework very mad at you. Yes, and that's... Another case where the best you can hope for is this thing was called correctly. So in your test, you know, that's uh, an opportunity for a, like a mock. Yeah. Unfortunately, in my case, it's a, it's a UI testing framework. So literally the test is like, you know, tap this thing over here, fill out an email address, et cetera, et cetera, which for email is okay because you shouldn't really be sending emails anyway. But for some of the other stuff, it's like suddenly I can't test photo browsing anymore because. Apple introduced this new thing. Right. And you could, you know, you could go as far as to have a compiler flag that's different when you're going to run it in that test harness. But uh, at that point, you're not actually testing your production code. You're testing your test code. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is the, the, the trade is always the trade off with that. And I guess you hit that trade off a lot with concurrency things and, and testing. At some point, you've got to kind of decide whether you really want to test it or whether you, you, um, you're happy with, like you said earlier, trusting. GCD to do its job or trusting the frameworks to do their job. Yeah, and one way you can kind of get around that is uh, you can actually mock on NS Operation Queue. So you could stub out the main queue method and return your mock queue and then make sure that things get added to it correctly. And it seems like when you're doing it in Kiwi, you know, you're, you're actually replacing the method that main queue calls with a different one and you're like, is this going to work? Is this going to like completely hose my system? But it works just fine. Kiwi's pretty magical, I guess. Huh? I wonder how they do that. I have no idea. I guess they know they can hook into the... Because they're the test runner as well, they can remove any monkeying around that you did at the end of the test so that you're not permanently hosing your... You're not doing like old-fashioned method swizzling where you've now kind of removed your... You've permanently kind of shut the door on yourself or whatever. Yeah, so uh, the way that it works is they do a lot of like invocation parsing um, and manual message forwarding, and they keep like a stack of all the changes you've made. And then when when that 
you know, block exits, it pops the stack and it undoes those changes. Neat. So one question that I run into a lot is generally for most apps that I write, they're pretty simple. And so, you know, having something block the main thread for a half a second or something, or not half a second, but, you know, a few milliseconds isn't going to hurt anything. And so at what point do you really need to start considering whether or not you need this kind of concurrency? I'd say that two milliseconds absolutely does mean something because when you, if you're trying right. to, to animate something like a table view at 60 frames a second, then if you do the math, you have, what is it, 16.7 milliseconds per frame to do your work. And uh, so you really don't have a lot of time to actually do all that animation. And, and if your drawing takes 10 milliseconds or, and you know, data processing takes another four or whatever, then you're already like up against that limit and you're going to start dropping frames if you add any more work in there. Yeah, as somebody who's like fussing with OpenGL shaders, I literally had one divided by 60 open in spotlight to get, to get that same number out because, you know, it, it definitely is important if you don't ever want to drop a frame. And it's a, you know, it's a trade-off, right? So if your application is going to be used by 15 people in an internal department where they just verify stuff with their phones, sure, two milliseconds is fine. But like if you look at Facebook and the paper app that just came out, like they've got potentially like what do they have like a billion users you know they need to make sure that it's going to look really nice on everybody's device on jailbroken devices that have weird background processes running and on the oldest ones they support as, as far as when you should decide to start investigating this it all starts you know with using instruments and especially there's the time profiler one where you can actually see how much of your app is spent in each method. And, you know, it's just like find the expensive parts of your app and either make them less expensive by better algorithms or put them on the background queue so that it's okay if they take a while. I'm definitely not a fan of just making things concurrent because they can be. You know, you should always write the code for a reason and to solve an actual problem. Yeah, I think there are two rules of concurrency and using threads. First is never do it. Second is C rule one, I think. That's pretty much it. <laughs> there's a, there's a, the third rule. If you really, really need to, then probably not anyway. But, but if you have to. If you have to, yeah. ask, then don't do it. The only code I can I think, think of that I use right now that actually uses NS thread, um, I think AF networking maintains its own thread to listen for network callbacks. And that's pretty much it. Everything else that I do can be expressed you know, as an individual discrete task using operations or just uh, GCD. So do you recommend using, like, operations for even, like, simple things, like bringing up a view controller, I have to do some relatively long-running process, half a second, and then pop to the main thread and do something. Do you recommend doing an NS operation queue or NS operation for something that simple? Obviously depends on what you're doing, but if the thing I'm doing is, you know, let's say load some cache data and then display a view controller, the nice thing about, you know, even using NS block operation to do some lightweight operations with blocks right there is that it's really easy to refactor. So if I make this long running operation and then I set that dependency of the showing the view controller code at any point in the future, I can refactor that out to be its own subclass of NS operation um, without going through and changing all the plumbing of how that system works. So instead of defining the block right there, I would just say make a new operation subclass of this kind. So even for simple things, doing it that way, when you need to do anything asynchronous, sets you up in the future for success. Okay, so down the road you can make modifications as needed. 
Mm-hmm. And it also avoids problems with like, you know, like every Objective C developer's first completion block where they retain self inside the block and the compiler warns it, warns them that they shouldn't do that. It avoids those kinds of problems because you're just, you're separating all the things you need to do. Okay, very cool. And then another good thing about the operations is with those cross queue dependencies, let's say you're developing the app uh, locally and then you want to use network data. So you still have your display the view controller code that's scheduled on the main block or the main queue and it's got a dependency of this load cache data operation. And you can go in and add another operation, which is the load the data off the network operation and then set that as a dependency of the cache data loading operation. And so without changing the initial code that shows the view controller, you've added a separate network layer. Okay, so at the point you need to start chaining operations together, then that allows you to do that pretty mm-hmm. easily. Yep, and another another common thing I see uh, with GCD where it falls down for people is waiting for a bunch of different operations to finish, right? So if I have 10 objects and I need to make a separate network call for all of those, um, and then when all of those are done, I need to do something else, um, it can be a little bit tough with GCD to get the mechanics right on doing that. Um, you know, there are like GCD semaphores you can use that, you know, control access, but um, it's a lot easier to just make an array of operations and add them all as a dependency. That's a good approach. My first approach would be to yell at the architect. <laughs> yes, yes, there's that. Unfortunately, we don't always get to write the web services too. Nope, but in a perfect world, everyone does what I say. Yes. Yes. You know, we have some clients where they've got people to write web services, but they ask us, what should this JSON output look like? And we really like those clients. Got one last random question. Is there any kind of considerations to do with kind of battery life around this? Like, is it going to be, am I going to potentially drain my my user's battery more if I'm using all of this fancy pants, multi-threaded stuff? Yeah, so you definitely want to be mindful of that. You know, you want to run your app through the battery life instruments. At the end of the day, you know, there's stuff that you need done, but there's things you can do with concurrency, like batching all your network requests to be together. And some of the new things Apple's doing in Mavericks, like with timers that you can say fire at this date, but it's okay to give it a little bit of wiggle room. For iOS, you know, worry about the battery life, but first off, worry about doing what you actually need to do and then uh, see if you can optimize it by doing things together more than separately. Gotcha, that makes sense. So that's all like the, the coalescing stuff that they're doing now with yeah. like turn, turning on the radio once rather than five times. Exactly. All right, well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off? Sure. I have two picks today. Uh, my first one is it's, it, it's actually issue two, which is a little bit of an old issue now of Objective-C.io. If you haven't read Objective-C.io, it's worth going through and reading all their issues, but they do, I I don't know how often they do this, but they do an in-depth issue about a single topic in Objective-C and Cocoa programming, and issue two was all about concurrent programming, so I think it's relevant and and very well done, and it talks about uh, all kinds of things related to concurrency in some depth. My second pick is Cocoa Heads. Cocoa Heads is a an international, sort of really loose international organization of um, local chapters that meet once a month for presentations and to hang out and, and whatever and, and talk about Coco and Objective-C. And I, I go to Coco Heads every month. It's it's how I know Chuck. And it's just worth checking out if you've never been. It's a great way to meet new people that are 
doing the same kinds of things you're doing and learn new things. Those are my picks. Awesome. Pete, what are your picks? Okay, my pick. So my first pick is something I mentioned earlier. This is the, the humble object pattern. So this is captured in a book called X-Unit Patterns, which is this huge encyclopedic book. It's quite intimidating, but luckily it has a nice website and you can go and kind of dip in and out of it. And because it's patterns, you can just read one and then you don't have to kind of, you know, it's kind of small uh, self-contained little ideas. And Humble Object is a good one. It's kind of a little bit like NS Operation kind of embodies this. So um, I'll, I'll add a link to the page on the X-Unit Patterns website. People can read that if they feel excited about Humble Objects. Um, my other pick is a bit of a mind-expanding one. Talking about all this stuff about concurrency m- makes me think about um, shared mutable state and how that's a bad thing and it causes us no end of pain. And if we could only not mutate state, then our lives would be so much better in a concurrent world. And um, Rich Hickey, who's the guy who wrote Closure, understands this very well. And he has a very good um, presentation where he talks about how Closure manages this with these things called persistent data structures. So these are also kind of called shared state data structures. They're nothing to do with persistence in the database sense of the word. They're more about um, making things that are immutable and that are very cheap to copy around and change. Um, it's really, really cool stuff if you're if you're into that kind of thing. Then my last pick is a food item. I've recently been really enjoying Trader Joe's Chili Spiced Mango. It's really nice. It's spicy. It's sweet. It fills you up. So that's my last pick. All right, Ben, what are your picks? So um, I was really depressed over the news this weekend when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Uh, He was one of my favorite actors. So um, I'd like to pick two of his movies, which are just good movies in general, but his role in those movies were awesome. The first one is Big Lebowski, and the second one is Almost Famous. So if you are not a Philip Seymour Hoffman, or if you don't know a lot of his movies, you've probably seen like 10 or 20 already. He's just got an impressive career of movies. So go watch a movie this week. And my third pick will be a beer pick. I've been really enjoying Union Jack IPA by Firestone Walker. It's delicious. That, that is a very good beer pick, Ben. <laughs> I aim to please. I drank one of those last night and I was thinking to myself, I should pick this beer. <laughs> <laughs> I pick you. All right. Jane, what are your picks? Okay, I want a plus one. Ben's pick on uh, his role on Almost Famous. It's, though it's kind of odd because he played Lester Bangs and they passed in similar circumstances. So that's kind of kind of odd coincidence. But I'm going to make a beer pick. So I was at the store picking up one of my favorite breweries is Weyerbacher, and they've got a, a Belgian triple they do called Mary Monks. It's pretty fantastic, and I had forgotten that I had liked it so much when I bought it a year ago. I'm like, oh, they made a triple, and I looked at it, I bought it, I tasted it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is that fantastic thing I drank a year ago. So it's very good, so try it out. Weyerbacher, Mary Monks. Those are my picks. All right. I'll jump in here with a few picks. Uh, one of them was something that was referred or recommended to me the other day. It's called focusatwill.com, and uh, basically it's this, I don't know exactly how to describe it, it's it's kind of a music service, except it's, they actually have a science page here, I'll put a link to that in there as well, that explains the science behind how they pick the music, but what they basically explain is that it, it helps you shut down your limbic system and stuff, and anyway, it sort of shuts off your fight or flight center of your brain and allows you to focus more. 
And uh, so I've been trying it for the last day or two, and I really do feel like I can focus more, but I'm not completely convinced yet whether it's the science, whether the science is good, because I don't know anything about neuroscience at all, or whether or not there's some kind of like placebo effect or something else. But uh, anyway, it's kind of scary how, how focused I did get yesterday at one point while I was uh, listening to the uh, the music and, and just working through some of the the stuff that I was doing. But anyway, I, I, I think it's pretty cool, and I'm probably going to keep using it. And so uh, I'm really, really enjoying that. Another pick I have is uh, Discourse, which is an open-source forum software that's written in Ruby on Rails with an Ember.js front end. And I, I really just, it's easily the best forum software I've used. I'm actually using it for the Ruby Rogues Parlay uh, group, which is a discussion forum on Ruby uh, centered around the Ruby Rogues podcast. I also have one for the JavaScript Jabber podcast. I'm considering opening one for this show so we can discuss iOS stuff in a forum um, on a regular basis. If you're interested in that, just uh, send a tweet to at iFreaks and just let let us know that uh, you would like to have that kind of a forum. The way that we've done that on the other shows is that you can either sign up for various levels. The lowest level is $10 a year. We found that that's basically enough to keep the the trolls out, and then you can choose a higher level of donation if you want to give back to the show. And so if you're interested in that, then I'll go ahead and set that up. But I want to make sure there's enough interest to get a bunch of people into the forum and get some discussions going um, so that it doesn't kind of turn into this uh, dead forum. So, What about the trolls that are actually on the show? <laughs> how, do, how, do you, how do you keep them out? With a big stick. So yeah, so those are my picks. Jeff, what are your picks? Sure. So the first one's going to be hardware. I got a Fitbit Force recently, and it's really, really nice. The nicest thing about it is the sleep tracking. So I just hold down the button before I go to sleep, and then when I wake up, I can see like a, a graph of how I slept. Totally found out that I uh, wake up every morning at 2.30 for a minute. No idea what's going on, but that's what I do. <laughs> uh, my next pick is a beer. It's New Holland Dragon's Milk. Um, it's a bourbon barrel stout, and it is fantastic. They come in like the big bottles at the store, and one of those gets me pretty sleepy. It's ten percent. So that's a it's a you know a bourbon barrel stout where they make the stout and they age it in the bourbon barrels. New Holland also makes a beer barrel bourbon, which is basically the reverse. And that's also fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. I've never heard of anyone doing that. So they just take the two barrels and swap them. Exactly. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense when you say it that way. Right? It's like Amazon selling their excess CPU cycles, you know? Yeah. They're just, you know, we have this bourbon barrel already. We might as well uh, you know, do something with the bourbon that was inside of it or whatever. Yeah, that bourbon had to go somewhere. Yeah, well, uh, I heard an interesting fact that... Uh, the barrel of oil actually came from beer barrels. They used to ship it in beer barrels way back in the day. Anyway, well, thanks for coming, Jeff. It was an interesting yeah, conversation. Hopefully we uh, helped a few people figure out how to approach these problems because they're not always simple. Mm -hmm. I've, I've found that concurrency, sometimes you just uh, dig the hole faster. <laughs> yes, you do more that can happen. You get two shovels. So, yeah, and if people have any questions, what's the best way for them to find you or get hold of you? Sure. So the fastest is probably on Twitter, um, Launch a Man, which is like the letter S, Launch a Man. Um, I'm also that on app.net. All right. Well, thanks again. We'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. <laughs>